Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and we'll talk with DJ Zeke Thomas about his own experience. I don't believe it's a feeling almost of abandonment, and it's not even a feeling of wanting to be heard. It's a feeling of wanting to be believed. According to the CDC, one in three women in the U.S. will experience some form of contact sexual violence in their lifetime. That term, contact sexual violence, includes rape, sexual coercion, and unwanted sexual contact. One in three. While we're beginning to have more awareness about the scale of this problem, there's something else that we're still not talking about, and that's that men are victims of sexual assault as well. One in six men will experience contact sexual violence over the course of his lifetime. We rarely hear their voices, which is why our next guest is doing such important work by speaking out about his own story. Zeke Thomas, DJ, advocate, and son of Basketball Hall of Famer Isaiah Thomas, is the first male spokesperson for the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, and he joined us recently here at 112BK. A note to our viewers and listeners, in this interview we talk about rape and sexual assault. Zeke, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So did you see that Dwayne Wade's son came out this weekend? That was amazing. I don't... Do you believe that he came out or was well, just attending the parade? I mean, he's 11, right? Mm. And so he didn't come out and say anything about his identity, but the tweets were like, you know, my whole family is at South Beach Pride supporting I just thought Zion. it was amazing that, you know, we, we're at a place in this country now, and especially the NBA. The NBA, you know, my dad obviously being an ex-NBA player and still involved in the league, definitely as a commentator and just w- loving the league. You know, my family always supported me, maybe not in a visual social media sense, just because it wasn't exi- in existence yet. Um, but for Dwayne Wade and for Gabrielle Union, as both African-American parents of a beautiful son, I believe it's actually just Dwayne's son, but Gabby treats it as yeah. her own. Yeah. But it's it, it, it's amazing and commendable to see such high caliber people really show, you know, we're here supporting. I loved period. it. I love I thought it was so beautiful. And also that a kid who's eleven, you know, is able to come out and feel embraced and loved by his family and his community without fear. Exactly. I mean I've one of my one of my agent's friends, you know, his two daughters, you know, are very much involved in LGBT things. They they wave to me every year when I pass them on the parade route, parade fort, whatever they choose to identify as or currently identify as. Um, it's amazing that people are just accepting humans for what they are. Just yeah. human beings. We're all trying to figure it out, right? We're not all one thing or the other. We're all just here trying to live a happy life. Absolutely. And so you mentioned your dad is a Thomas, New York Nick, famously. Um, how, what was it like when you came out? How old were you? What was the response from your family like? So when I came out, I was, I'd say, about 20 years old, mm-hmm. give or take a couple months. <laughs> I always choose to do things around my birthday. So I'm always, like, trying to decide, am I 20 or am I 21 at the time? Right, right. I think that's true, though. Birthdays, like, you know, mark an important passage of time for people. Exactly. And they're like, well, might as well come out or upend my life or, yeah. you know, whatever, whatever the thing is. Yeah. But it was, it was, it was a pretty 
flawless project in, or e easy thing in terms of telling my parents and telling my family. The hard part was, you know, my friends. And I don't even believe it was my friends as much as it was myself. I believe when you come out as a gay man or just identifying yourself growing up, um, it presents new challenges that you didn't know existed before. You know, growing up as a kid, you don't really realize your race or your different until somebody tells you, oh, you're black and this is what happened to you in the past. Or you're Latina and this is what happened to you and, you know, so forth and so on. Or you're white and now you have white privilege. And right. What is that? But as a kid, you don't you don't realize these things. So now when you're growing up, okay, you know you're black. Okay, that's one strike against me, so to speak, or something that I now have to learn to navigate. So now you're identifying gay. So now basically you have two minority strikes against you that you now have to identify with and figure out. So that to me was the interesting part of what I now had to figure out. It was a lot of my friends or even family members sent to me, well, now everything's all gay for you. Like, why are you so immersed in the gay culture, like gay clubs and gay this and gay that? And it's like, well, that's a part of my identity. It's not that I'm just diving into the gay pool. It's that, you know, I never experienced these things about myself. And I now want to find out, do I like this? Do I like that? Do I whatever? I don't generally like going to hip hop clubs. I love hip hop music, but I don't like going to hip hop clubs. I don't like going to gay clubs sometimes, but I am gay. Um, and I think that everybody has to figure out these certain things that they like as a person. I don't like cucumbers, like pickles. Cucumbers <laughs> taste like off water. I totally agree with you. Pickles are delicious. Um, I think that's so true. And I think specifically with coming out, because it is something that you can stay closeted about as opposed to your race, which unless you can pass, you can't stay closeted about. Exactly. Like, I, I always joke with my friend, my my friend who always is like, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of biracial. I can kind of go either way. I'm like, well, what happens when you get arrested? You're black. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Who do they think you are? Right, yeah. They think you yeah. Are. They definitely want to listen to you discourse about like, well, actually, my racial identity is complex until they're stopping and frisking you. Exactly. Um, so we're here also because uh, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. um, and you have come out in such a brave way and talked about your own experience. Will you tell us a little bit about what happened to you? So unfortunately, when I was 12 years old, I was sexually assaulted um, by members of my AAU basketball team. Um, and then again, when I was 27 years old, um, by a gentleman who I actually had gone on a date previously um, with. So these were two situations where I essentially knew the per person and people um, who assaulted me and raped me. These were definitely two events in my life that I didn't realize how big effect they had, especially the one that happened when I was 12. It was kind of something that I didn't comprehend even as myself, what had happened. Um, and then telling people about it years later, um, it was definitely something like, whoa, that happened? And definitely there were parents that reached out even to my parents who were like, we, we didn't know, we didn't know. My parents were definitely upset. Um, just like anybody, anybody, everybody was upset and concerned about me. But then going forward, it was like, okay, now what do we do? Because... I was hiding these things. I was still hiding that these things had happened to me. As a 27-year-old man, I'm going around saying everything's okay, everything's okay, but clearly my house was on fire. 
um, a lot of my friends were like, your behavior was very erratic. Mm -hmm. um, you were doing things that didn't make sense, saying things that didn't make sense. You were just all over the place. We knew something was wrong, but we didn't know how to approach you about it. And that's something that I hear a lot of survivors saying that a lot of their friends or family members that they felt abandoned. And I really have been playing with this most recently in my head and through therapy and stuff. I don't believe it's a feeling almost of abandonment. And it's not even a feeling of wanting to be heard. It's a feeling of wanting to be believed. And there's a much different thing in that. You know, when I went on Good Morning America, and I've been saying this a lot, you know, to me, that was a very selfish decision of myself. It was me wanting to say to the world that this had happened to me. It wasn't me saying, you know, I want to heal, I want to do this, I want to better society. It was me getting up on my soapbox, so to speak, and saying my truth. And I think that all survivors, if they had had that platform or any platform to scream it out, whether, you know, somebody's screaming on a megaphone at their local high school or, you know, on Good Morning America, like me, it's just screaming out, hoping that somebody there believes you and gives you some force of compassion. You know, I just wanted a hug. Mm -hmm. Other people, you know, they want a conversation with their actual perpetrator or rapist or assaulter. Those were the things that were hard to navigate as opposed to, okay, I made this decision for me. Now how now it's affected so many others. It's affected so many others in a way that, okay, now my friends and my family basically are reliving my rape anytime I do an interview like this. Anytime I talk about it, you know, it's, it's, I, that is my, my identity, one of, one of my roles that I have decided to take in terms of activism. But then for me, it was, okay, Joshua, Zeke, Thomas, you have now decided to step into this activism path, but are you ready for it? And at the time, I don't believe I was. And I had to learn a lot of information and I had to learn a lot about myself. And in learning about myself, I'm now able to step into the role and call myself an activist. I mean, it's such an act of bravery to come forward publicly, especially when you yourself are a public figure. And as you mentioned, people aren't believed. Um, you know, women talk about this all the time, especially if they knew their accuser coming forward, people being like, well, you know, was that rape? Was that sexual assault? And even Terry Crews, right, who famously mm -hmm. came out and was like, look, you know, I'm, I'm a professional athlete and I was groped in public by another man. And the things that were said to him were just reprehensible. You had Dale Hughley saying, uh, God gave you muscles so you could say no and mean it, which is just so toxic. Yes. Um, what do you say about that? And, and were, you, were you afraid that you would be um, facing, facing the type of victim blaming that we see all the time? Well, I did. I definitely did face victim blaming. You know, there were people like me. I mean, I'm not the size of Terry Crews, but I'm still a 6'1", physically fit man who definitely is capable of defending himself. Um, but when you're faced with an assault or a trauma Generally, the first reaction of any animal, and I always give this, this, this comparison because we've all seen a deer or a rabbit in our yard or walking around. When you see that, the first instinct of the animal isn't to run away. It's they freeze. 
They literally freeze. And generally, that is a human being's first response to devastating news. They freeze or an attack. They freeze. Um, but in talking about, you know, Terry Crews and D.L. Hughley and women who aren't believed, it's such a complexity that we're able to have this great conversation now, today, and so many people are having it. But the hardest part now is, okay, what are these things? And we are going to have to have now a hard conversation in defining these things. You know, I've, I've spoken in front of Congress. I've talked to many people. And we have no, no concrete legislation around these things. And when you make, make legislation based on emotions, you end up in a hot mess, as we see our mm -hmm. president is in right mm -hmm. now with this crazy-ass border. So the first step is sort of not being believed, right? People saying, oh, she's lying, he's lying. The second step I see as people being like, all right, well, maybe that is true. Like, maybe there was a sexual assault, but she was asking for it. And in the case of women, this is often like, well, what was she doing out at two at night, drinking martinis and wearing a short skirt? And in the case of men, this is often, oh, well, you know, gay men are promiscuous. Gay men are using apps where they're going out and looking for sex. What do you say to people who are, again, blaming the victim. I don't believe that anybody anywhere is ever looking for a rape or an assault. I mean, there definitely are people who have fetishes and fantasies, but those things are normally in controlled environments where they say, this is what I want, give it to me, right. so to speak. Right, it has to be safe in yes. order for that fantasy to be carried out. Correct, but the hard part is for me to wrap my head around is, okay, so gay men were, you, you've seen many parties of gay men at these massive festivals and we're all shirtless and living our life. That doesn't give somebody f permission to then basically grope you on your chest or grope you on your butt or wherever they decide to grope you. That's not permission just because I'm shirtless and happen to look good, so to speak. Now, the hard part is, and when I say this, I definitely have gotten slack from people, is in reality, you know, in, in, in pretend reality, we can all say sexual assault is bad, rape is bad, it should never happen, okay, problem solved. That's just not the case in real reality. In real reality, if a man is shirtless in a bar, in a gay bar, unfortunately, he's probably going to get groped. If a woman is wearing an open chest shirt in a bar. I'm not saying she's going to get groped, but she's definitely going to get a lot more attention than she would if she was not. These are just things that we have to realize. But again, nobody's out to get assaulted or raped, and that is a line of, that you're crossing. But what you have to learn to realize as just a person, as just a human being, is that, yeah, when you put yourself in situations you know, if you're drunk at four in the morning stumbling around, you're either going to get arrested, maybe mugged, or worse. You know, it's, it's not just something that, you know, is a, is a new thing. You know, sexual assault and rape are hard things to digest. But other crimes do happen at these same things when people are impaired 
or when people are making bad judgment. Right. And I think that that's why it's so important for us to be teaching kids about consent, right? Where it's like, it doesn't matter what she's wearing or what he's wearing. Consent is paramount. And you don't get to touch. You don't get to do anything unless that person gives affirmative vocal consent. And also they can with they can withdraw that consent. One hundred percent. They can withdraw moment. that consent at any time. You right. can say no at any time. You can pull away at any time. You can literally push away at any time if you need to. Um, but we have to recognize that there are situations where my touch may not be what you wanted, but that's not assault, and that's where we're in this situation of feelings where you see people coming out against Joe Biden. Now, right. Joe Biden right. is, you know, an older man who's been giving people hugs and touching for decades. I right. mean, he's just, that's the way he is. He's actually very much like myself. I'm a, I'm a hugger, so to speak. There's many people who say, I'm a hugger. I'm not going to shake your hand. Sorry, I'm a hugger. And you have the option to accept that hug or not accept that hug. But I'm sure that person who's calling themselves a hugger is not hugging you to assault you. Right. Not all uh, uncomfortable touch is assault. And at the same time, we should be able to speak out and say, hey, that thing that you think that you're doing is making me uncomfortable. That's right. You may but think that's it's harmless. Okay. Mm. You know what I mean? It's OK for you to say that's uncomfortable and for that person to say, I'm sorry. But then you both have to move on and say, OK, right. What's also, up? crucially, you should say, I'm sorry. Correct. <laughs> you shouldn't just say, I didn't intend to make you feel you uncomfortable. You should say, I'm sorry. Yes, you should um, say, I'm sorry. I also feel like so much of this has to do with slut shaming, right? Where it's like, if somebody is promiscuous, if somebody does like to go out and have sex using apps, that if they then fall victim to a sexual assault, there's this idea of like, oh, well, you know, the other five times they wanted it. And so what? This last time they didn't want it. We have such a taboo. It's it's really is the last frontier of humans that we will not talk about. It, it, it's something that we've been doing since Adam and Eve or whoever you believe to be the first humans to walk this earth. It's something that's not going away. Sex is not going away as long as we want to stay on this planet. Right. Um, but it's something that none of us talk about. And pornography has now defined sex. And even Pornhub is now starting to put actually real sex, what they call real sex, not produce sex, as the first images that you get access to, to try to stop this aggressive porn material that is basically put out. And everybody thinks, okay, that's what people like. That's what people are into. That's how we have sex. And that's not fact. Generally, Everybody who has sex, whether it's today or they've had sex a million times before, each occurrence, you're all just trying to figure it out. You're trying to figure out what he's thinking, what she's thinking, what they are thinking. You're trying to figure out. And you know out. how you can and figure that you out? don't know. By asking each other and by replying in a, cons yes. in a consensual yes. fashion. Yes, and it's... You can't it's uncomfortable it. to do, right. but it's the right thing to do. Right. You know? Yeah, and we have to, I think... Um, move beyond thinking that that's not sexy. Correct. To ask someone, is this what you want? But that's also something that we have to know. It's, it's mental health. It, it's just general communication of asking the uncomfortable. People are afraid to ask the uncomfortable, but really at the end of the day, it's a yes or no that you're mm -hmm. going to get, and nothing's going to change from where you are currently. Can I ask, um, you knew your rapist. Did you 
press charges? Did you go to the police? Now, unfortunately, rapists generally are smart. Um, that's something that, you know, criminals are smart. Criminals have done this before. They know how to take advantage of people. That's why I love to point to the fact, you know, there are way more good people in this world than there are bad people. Way more. And that's why, you know, I was able to say to myself and go out to bars rather quickly and just start saying, you know what, this happened once over the course of, at the time, 27 years or twice over the course of 27 mm -hmm. years of my life. It's not something that just happens every day to me. It happens to other people, but not to me. And unfortunately, me knowing my rapist, we had a date. We had a great date. I even introduced him. I was at my recording studio, even introduced him to my cousins. It was like he checked almost every box of waiting for somebody to say, okay, this guy's messed up. Get rid of him. But rapists are smart. They make you feel comfortable, and then all of a sudden, they pray. The gentleman then deleted his profile on Grindr where we met. He had actually given me a fake number, um, whether that was a Google Voice account or just, you know, any app you can download, a second phone number. So he basically disappeared. Mm -hmm. And it was no use to find him in terms of hiring a private investigator and whatever. However, uh, law enforcement did say more than not frequently these people get caught. Eventually, somebody makes a report and is able to track them down. Mm -hmm. Now, when I went to when I went to talk to law enforcement or even the private investigator who I talked to, and I gave the description, you're like, you're describing pretty much every white male in America. So, who are we really looking for? Do we even know if his name was his actual name? I knew his number wasn't his actual number. I knew he deleted his grinder. Do I even know his real name? It was those things that were so hard to accept that I'm probably not going to be able to press charges against this man. However, I'm so happy that many are able and strong enough to go through the justice system. But again, legislatively, we have to change these things. Most times a victim, when they first call the police, they have to make a statement, and they normally make that statement to the police. Then they have to make a statement to the district attorney. Then they have to probably make another statement to an investigator who's now going to investigate that crime. Then they have to probably make a statement to the perpetrator's investigator. And the now you have to make a statement in front of the judge. So now you've made five statements, and you're reliving that trauma while you're also trying to heal at the same time. And that's in addition then to you gotta go to, to a rape court. Kit. Yeah, yeah, then you got to go to court. Then you got to go to the hospital. It... It is a hard, big ordeal. And actually, Safe Horizon here in the Bronx, New York, actually, does a great job. Their facility actually is pretty much a one-stop shop for victims. Um, they have a video camera there. They have a district attorney there. They have a police station there. So it's pretty much the person giving the statement once and being able to move on. And I wish more cities nationwide would follow Safe Horizon's lead into tackling that issue. There's so many issues that we can tackle around sexual assault, around mental health awareness, to make things easier for victims of massive traumas to get help. Absolutely. That 
pathway to seeking justice is so difficult, um, and we don't need to make it even more difficult by, say, not testing rape kits. And I mean, even even at the beginning, I mean, if you then put the layer of, you know, the suspiciousness of the criminal justice system or law enforcement, whether that's you're a black person, a Latina person, a gay person, an Asian person, you know, the, the stereotypes of anti, not anti-police, but being suspicious of the police, of the legal system, those things don't just go away because now you need help. Right. Yes. I'm, I'm thinking specifically, too, about the police don't have a great relationship with either black men or the LGBT community. And so to then have to say, I am relying I on you mm -hmm. to believe me uh, and to not victim blame or, or any of these things. And especially in a very toxic masculine um, that is the police force. You know, most police officers are great cops and do do a great job. But most police officers probably have never heard of a man coming to them that might have been the first man coming to them saying I was raped. Right. And that man might even be bigger than them. And now they're trying to, we're all human beings trying to now justify this thing that is just coming to light over, you know, when I gave my interview on Good Morning America, the Me Too movement had been founded and started. It didn't catch steam, however, until December of that same year. It, it, it literally was an anomaly. I was one of the first people to come out and then this whole thing just caught fire. And it's changes are happening. But that's one of the things that I point to is that, you know, I did this in April and it was deemed, this is weird to talk about. Then Me Too hit in December and it was like, whoa, we gotta talk about it. And now we're at the point where we can talk about, okay, how do we fix this broken system? I'm so glad you brought up toxic masculinity, too, because I think all roads lead back to it, right? Mm -hmm. um, both in in terms of the people who commit assaults, probably coming from a place of toxic masculinity, but also our perception of um, men who have been insulted is so informed by our notions of what it means to be a man and why didn't you fight back? And how can this be that a six foot one man is saying that he himself was victimized? Um, what are some ways that you think that we can go about breaking down notions about masculinity and what it means to be a man? Well, going back to Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union, I mean, that right there, that statement, what he did, um, how sm small it was, you know, just to acknowledge, I love my child, you know, that's the simple thing that he did was that I love my child. But that wouldn't have been done five years ago, 10 years ago by some NBA basketball players, some athletes. And I grew up in athletics and I've met gay players. I've met, you know, but it was very closed in quarters, very protected. And just in talking about the black experience, talking about the black family, you know, it's very much a patriarchy or matriarchy system in terms of who, who do we look up to? Who's the elder? in our group, in our family, in our church, in our whatever. And if they are saying, I don't really know about this, or this is absolutely wrong, then that's pushed down. And whether you believe it or not, that's what you have to conform to. Mm -hmm. I want to come back and talk about your first sexual assault, because I think um, 
one that made the headlines for better or for worse, right, was one that happened, the rape that happened when you were 27. But when you were 12, you were on a athletic trip with yeah. your teammates, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that this is an incident that many people in a previous era might have written off, or maybe even in this era, would have written off as boys will be boys, or like, this is just bullying that got out of hand. Can you talk a little bit about how we need to reframe what happened to you? Well, it's amazing when you when you use the phrase boys will be boys, it takes me back to Jerry Sandusky um, and Joe Paterno basically being the patriarchal figure in that Penn State case of basically saying, I don't get this. I don't understand this. This is too much for me. Boys will be boys, whatever. But Jerry Sandusky was raping these young men, these these football players. And I got assaulted by three, four members of my team, but I was forced to perform oral sex on them. Were they all your peers, your same age? Uh, slightly older. Okay. Um, I'd say 14, 15. Mm-hmm. Um, I was 12. But it's just amazing that people forget what it's like to just have something taken away from you. You know, whether that is a parent, whether that is, you know, you got in a massive car accident or you no longer um, have the ability to hear, something was just taken away from you. And in that moment, my innocence was taken from me. I didn't realize it at the time, but my innocence was taken away from me. And now I had a lifelong scar internally that I had to deal with. So this month, as we mentioned, is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. What do you hope that people think about this month? What do you want them to keep in their hands? What I want people to keep in their heads about Sexual Assault Awareness Month is that it's, it's not a month to just focus on this issue solely. This is an issue that has been happening since the dawn of time. This is an issue that will continue to happen. We're not going to put an end to sexual assault unfortunately. But what we can do is inform victims, inform survivors, and inform the general public of, yes, this is consent. No, this is not consent. Yes, this is sexual assault. Yes, this is rape. Yes, we understand. Yes, we believe you. Yes, we want to love and be there for you. Um, I really want people to take from this month that therapy, and it takes time. You know what I mean? It takes a lot of time. It takes way more than a month to get over this. And that's what I want people to know. I want want people to know that there are many outlets that they can use, including me. You know, I, I talk to people on Instagram all the time who have gone through experiences. And I'm not their therapist. I'm not, you know, there forever. I'm just there to say, you know what? I believe you. I'm here. Let's get through this together. Well, Zeke, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a real pleasure talking to you. No, thank you for having me. That's the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to review 112BK on iTunes. And please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. One to BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. 
It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 